Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. According to a new survey, Americans view the Supreme Court unfavorably in the wake of its decision overturning Roe v. Wade. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. Spokesman Steve Greenberg says in the New York Times Siena College poll, 53% of American voters view the Supreme Court unfavorably. Compared to 41% who view the court favorably, Republicans overwhelmingly view the Supreme Court favorably. Democrats overwhelmingly view the Supreme Court unfavorably. Independents tilt unfavorable, but only by a 55 to 40 percent margin. Similarly, we ask voters, do you think that Supreme Court decisions are based on the Constitution and law? Or do you think that they're based on the political views of the justices? By better than two to one, 63 to 30% voters, Amer- Americans, voters say that the that Supreme Court decisions are based more on the political views of the justices rather than on the Constitution and the law. Voters were asked how they felt about the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. 61 to 29 percent voters oppose the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade and eliminated the constitutional right to abortion. And we followed up by asking voters, uh, do you think abortion should be always most or mostly legal? Or do you think uh, abortion should be mostly illegal or always illegal? And what we find there is that by 65 to 26 percent, Americans say they believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Only about a quarter of voters say that abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. Greenberg notes that by 53 to 41 percent, voters say America's political system is too divided politically to solve its problems. 69 percent say voting makes a difference in how government works, compared to 28 percent who say voting doesn't make a difference. Mirroring a closely divided Congress, Greenberg says voters are closely divided on who they want to win this November. The Senate is 50-50. In the House, the Democrats have a razor-thin majority in the in the 435-person House of Representatives. So we ask voters, after the November election, who do you want to control Congress, the Democrats or the Republicans? Well, it's virtually down the middle. 41% of voters say they'd like to see the Democrats control Congress. 40% say they would like to see uh, the Republicans control Congress. Uh, Not surprisingly, 90% of Republicans want the Republicans in control. 90% of Democrats want the Democrats in control. And independents, 
divided down the middle. 35% want to see the Democrats in charge. 34% want the Republicans in charge. Hudson Valley Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, a Democrat from the 18th District, is running the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee's midterm efforts. He spoke on WAMC's Congressional Corner Thursday. What success looks like is is people understanding that this is a choice, that, that this is a choice between a MAGA Republican Party that is characterized by a violent attack on the Capitol, an mm. effort to steal an election mm. and overturn the peaceful transfer of power, mm. by the overturning of 50 years of reproductive freedom and, and trashing Roe v. Wade, and by ignoring the gun violence that is wreaking havoc at July 4th parades and school classrooms and public spaces, places of worship. Greenberg says voters were also asked to weigh in on January 6th. What we find is that voters say that the Capitol riots were an attempt to overthrow the government, not simply a protest that got out of hand, but narrowly. Uh, 49% say the Capitol riots were an attempt to overthrow the government, a plurality, but 42% say they were protests that got out of hand. Similarly, 49% of Americans think that Trump committed serious federal crimes in the aftermath of the 2020 elections, uh, while 40% of voters uh, disagree with that and say don't think he did. Obviously, huge partisan divides. About three-quarters of Republicans disagree with both of those statements, and the vast majority of Democrats agree with both of them. There's a link to the survey at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. So, Alan, the top judge in New York State announced she was stepping down this week. That's Janet DeFiori, chief judge of the State Court of Appeals, saying she will resign at the end of August. The 66-year-old nominated by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo in 2015. She did not give a reason for her departure, but said in a statement Monday she's moving, quote, on to the next chapter in life. That means the governor will need a new nominee for the role, which carries a 14-year term. Some say it's a bit shocking. There are some reports that there's a coming investigation into the chief judge. Your thoughts on the news? Well, here's my first thought. We're all humans, and people do strange things. That's why you need to have rules. That's why we have rules in broadcasting. That's why we have rules in other places, so that people stay within the lines. You drive down the road. You don't drive on the other side of the road. It's very disappointing when you hear the kind of rumors and things that have been said about the chief judge, because obviously, as a woman, she was a groundbreaker in so many ways in our attempts to make women equal in this society, politically and in every other way. And when an icon like the chief judge falls, or when there are rumors about the chief judge, that ain't good. Well, also not good. 
You spoke with the state controller, Tom DiNapoli, this week for your Capital Connection program. And guess what? He still doesn't have any pre-audit powers. New York Times reported this week, quote, the legislature's proposed budget would have restored to state statutes some of the controller's pre-audit powers, which had been removed under former Governor Cuomo. Ms. Hochul's budget stripped it out. Well, this is very disappointing on Ms. Hochul's part. She says she's a good person. She says she's a good politician. She says she wants to do the right thing. She says she believes in transparency. And then this. This is not good. And I'm very upset about it because when somebody says they're going to follow a specific course of action and then doesn't, you know, it gives a certain stink of hypocrisy to the entire system. Too bad. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Charton. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics, I'm David Gustina. With the U.S. now in a post-Roe v. Wade era, people will give birth to children they cannot or choose not to care for. So what does this mean for the already overburdened foster care system? The Legislative Gazette's Ashley Hupfel explains. While recent data by the Federal Children's Bureau of Administration of Children and Families showed the number of children in foster care had been decreasing, caseworkers and advocates are bracing for a turnaround after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade and many states enacted trigger laws banning abortion. Mariah Craven is with the National Foster Youth Institute. If you um, force people to have children that they may not want, um, they sort of logical extension of that is that the child could end up in foster care. Um, and even, you know, sometimes children are wanted, but, you know, the, the reality is that people can't always afford them at that moment in their life. And uh, a significant number of children end up in foster care due to uh, poverty-related issues. So, um if we know that the majority of women who seek abortions do so for financial reasons, it just stands to reason that um, the, the issues that put people, put young children and, and young adults into foster care are just going to be exacerbated. Advocates like Craven worry that red states that quickly move to ban abortion are not prepared to handle the increased demand in their child welfare systems. The people who are celebrating the overturning of Roe versus Wade and saying, we worked so long and so hard for this. Um, What they weren't working on was putting things in place to make it possible or easier for people to have families. And that's what is so frustrating and frightening about all of this, um, is that this is a system that was strained to begin with. And if we're not going to bother to give women and people who can get pregnant 
access to health care or raise their wages or give them affordable child care, then what do we expect them to do? A November 2021 report by the Federal Administration for Children and Families found there were about 427,000 children in foster care, with more than 117,000 children waiting for placement into a home. Comparatively, New York has about 16,000, with 700 waiting for placement. In Massachusetts, there are about 10,000 children in foster care, with about 650 children in group homes. Vermont has about 1,000 children in foster care and about 400 children in group homes. And Connecticut has about 4,000 children in placement and about 275 children in group homes. Peter Gannon, president and CEO of United Way of the Greater Capital Region, says they have introduced a new campaign to raise awareness of the need for new foster families. The organization's 211 helpline allows people to learn about becoming a foster parent. We looked at this ongoing crisis that we have here in New York State uh, with foster care system. We have a great partner at Berkshire. We did some uh, visibility activities with them during Foster Care Awareness Month in May. Nicole Wood is a foster parent in Schenectady. Although she expects fallout from the Supreme Court's decision, she believes the COVID-19 pandemic was even more devastating to the system. Whether or not the Supreme Court decision affects this, I'm sure down the road it will. But right now, I'm not sure how much more dire the crisis could get. And I'm not talking about just teens that we can't find homes for. I'm talking about two-year-olds, five-year-olds, sibling group of a really sweet seven and nine-year-old, and there are no homes. So it's bad. It's, it's dire. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Ashley Helpful. As horse racing opened for the season at Saratoga this week, New York racing officials announced a new amenity to benefit backstretched workers. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. The ceremony celebrated the start of construction on a new backstretch health care clinic. In addition to primary care, the clinic, slated to open in 2023, will also provide counseling and specialty services. The structure, meant to resemble the historic architecture of Saratoga Racecourse, will have a waiting area, four exam rooms, and a lab for blood work. It will replace a double-wide trailer that has been used in previous seasons. The clinic will be operated by Saratoga Hospital and the Backstretch Employee Service Team. Dr. Alexander Cardiel is BEST's medical director and has been working at Saratoga for 15 seasons. He says the clinic will receive hundreds of visits. For many of our patients who come through the, the clinic here, this is their only opportunity to receive primary care. For some, it's the first time they've seen a physician in this country. The clinic's construction will be funded by John Hendrickson, the husband of the late Saratoga doyen, Mary Lou Whitney. Hendrickson was on hand for the ceremony, calling the backstretch workers the unsung heroes of Saratoga. Mary Lou always thought that Saratoga should be the summer place to be for everyone, including the backstretch workers. Mary Lou worked hard her whole life to make sure that everyone felt welcomed and loved in Saratoga. Hendrickson has pledged $1.2 million for construction of the clinic. About $400,000 was raised in an auction two years ago from the sale of his wife's belongings. Since Whitney's death in 2019, Hendrickson has continued to fund backstretch appreciation dinners, bingo nights, and ESL classes. Last year, officials cut the ribbon on Faith's House, a child care center for backstretch workers at Saratoga. 
Also attending the ceremony, Assemblywoman Carrie Warner and State Senator Daphne Jordan recognized the work of Hendrickson, Best, and Saratoga Hospital. Jordan issued State Senate Empire Awards to Best and Saratoga Hospital and a New York State Commendation Award to Hendrickson. For your efforts and your funding of the clinic here. And there are many backstretch workers that were, will be forever, forever thankful to you. New York Racing Association spokesperson Pat McKenna says the state sets the industry standard for comprehensive services for racing employees. We're incredibly proud of what this facility represents because it will result in a higher quality of life for literally thousands of people each and every year. The 2022 racing season will feature improvements to the track itself and the backyard area. The reconstructed Wilson Chute, which was last used in the 1970s, will allow for the return of one-mile dirt races at the spa. The two-story post bar and paddock suite replaces the gathering area and bar that had been located under a tent near the paddock area. Naira is also increasing purses by $1.6 million. The 40-day meet at the spa runs through Labor Day and is anchored by the $1.25 million Travers on August 27th and the $1 million Whitney on August 6th. There will be a total 77 stakes races worth more than $22 million in purses, and officials are expecting a busy summer. Again, McKenna. There is nothing quite like the anticipation of opening up for yet another summer meet, the 154th, if you can believe it. For photos, visit WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. With school boards across New York reorganizing after voters went to the polls in May, an analysis has been released on the 2022 elections. The New York State School Boards Association looked at voter turnout, board member incumbency, and the major issues. The Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis spoke with the association's David Albert this week about the findings, including that 54% of elected school board candidates were incumbents. It did surprise us, and I'll tell you why, because we actually had more newcomers this year running for office than incumbents. So the fact that more incumbents won was a little bit surprising because we did expect to see more newcomers. So um, a little bit of a surprise, but as, as you point out, it's not a, a huge difference. You know, 54% were incumbents and 46% newcomers. Uh, so it's not you know, completely out of whack, but at the same time, given that we had more new first-time members running for board service, we did expect to see a little bit of an increase in, in uh, the new members. But I will also point out that we have seen over the last couple of years, a, even though more incumbents won this year than newcomers, the percentage of incumbents getting reelected every year is dwindling. It's going down. So last year it was 60% of incumbents won. This year it was 54%. So it's actually gone down. And if you go back two years ago, which was at the height of the pandemic and everything was mail-in ballots, it was 70% of incumbents uh, you know, were, were elect, actually took office. So 
70% to 60% down to 54%. So the percentage of board members that are incumbents is actually going down every year. And to go along with that, the association estimates that fewer incumbents chose to seek re-election in 2022, as you mentioned, compared to previous years, 30% compared to uh, 25% in recent years. What are some of the reasons given for that or or thought of for that? Yeah, so uh, as you point out, about 30% of incumbents, so almost a third, decided not to even run. And typically, we see about 20 to 25 percent of incumbents decide not to run. So it, it definitely was an increase this year. And so we did actually reach out to our incumbents who decided to uh, not run again. And and what we saw most often was that they just had you know uh, other demands on their time, family you know commitments, um, things of that nature. Um, we did see. That, you know, a feeling that it was time to move on. You know, I've done my board service, and now it's a chance for someone else to contribute. It does take a lot of time, you know, to to serve on a school board. Uh, it's not just the meetings, but it's other time, you know, prepping for meetings and addressing issues. And then we also saw a couple of other reasons. One was lack of civility. You know, so we know that there have been some instances where Board meetings have gotten a little bit out of hand. Um, yelling, you know, hasn't been uh, perfect uh, sailing or smooth sailing. And so uh, some board members just decided they had enough. Um, and then graduating children. Uh, they had children who had moved on and were going off uh, beyond high school. And uh, they decided that was a good time to move on, you know, themselves and give someone else a chance to, to take over uh, on their local school board. You mentioned that lack of uh, or decrease in civility. Um, a lot of it had to do with hot button issues, diversity, equity, inclusion, COVID-19 policies. But still, the association analysis found that most of the nearly 1,500 elected school board candidates did not base their campaign platforms around those issues. What did that finding tell you that if a lot of the discussion, the heated discussion was around those issues, but those who won seats did not actually focus so much on those issues. What did that tell you? Yeah, so I think that's a, that was an interesting finding, you know, because we certainly had heard a lot throughout the state about candidates that were basing their platforms on, you know, certain issues, you know, whether it was, um, you know, a parent choice uh, type of issue as far as, you know, having input into curriculum or it was masks, Um and, and we, we knew that there were a number of candidates that were concerned about those issues and based their campaign on those issues. But what we found at the end of the day was that issues that tended to be polarizing in the community were not a winning platform. It doesn't mean that the candidates who won didn't address those issues in terms of you know responding to questions, being asked about those issues but they just didn't make it the centerpiece of their campaign. And instead, we found that they tended to focus on the winning candidates, really tended to focus more on cohesion, bringing the community together. That was more the winning theme as opposed to, you know, perhaps focusing on an issue that was seen by some members in the community as divisive. So that was an interesting finding. And again, you know, it, there were some cases where 
some candidates who did focus on some of those issues did win. So I'm not going to say it was, you know, across the board, but we're looking at, you know, kind of the majority of the, the winning candidates and, and the majority didn't tend to focus their campaigns on those issues. And probably the the finding that I found most interesting was that 88 percent of candidates endorsed by teachers unions were elected. Um, yes. And that that is so interesting to me because, as you mentioned, the, the you know, there were the so-called, you know, parent choice candidates. But it seemed to be that getting a, an endorsement from a teachers union was was basically a, a lock for a win. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no question. I mean, almost nine out of ten of the candidates that that we identified as being endorsed by the union won uh, their election. Uh, so that you know does say to us that it, those those endorsements matter. And um, you know, it it you can speculate. You know, it may be that perhaps the community. Uh, looks to teachers union as being, you know, experts in education. And, hey, you know, if they're suggesting or recommending this particular candidate, then, you know, we that 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 matters to us. Uh, and and maybe in some instances, there may be people who, who wouldn't vote for someone the union endorsed, but but those folks didn't seem to show up, um, at least in this election, uh, based on these numbers. So, you know, again, I, I think it does speak to the fact that uh, uh, I think local teachers unions are, are obviously seen in a very positive light by people who vote in school district elections and board elections. And overall voter turnout this year on school district budgets and boards was up uh, 23% compared to 2021. What do you think drove that increase? Yeah, uh, we did see an increase, and actually it's it's a welcome increase because we have seen a uh, really very low percentage of uh, registered voters actually showing up at the polls to vote on their school district budgets and in, in school board elections. I mean, typically it's about 8% of registered voters, and if you want to compare that to, say, a gubernatorial election, that's about 48% of registered voters. So there's a big gap there between you know, folks who are showing up in board elections and showing up for larger elections. Uh, so we saw a big increase this year, about 23%. And I think what we saw is, you know, that with a lot of the, the controversial issues that were in play and under discussion this year, I mean, school boards got a lot of attention, not just here in New York State, but nationally. Uh, they were really at the center of a number of controversial issues. And we think that helped drive uh people showing up at the polls this year. And I think there are also groups that were encouraging folks to go out and vote. I know the teachers union does that. We do that. The efforts to get out the vote, coupled with all of the controversy that we've seen play out on a national stage, resulted in increased voter turnout this year. That's the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavulis speaking with the New York State School Board Association's David Albert. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2228. Or just listen at wamc.org. Or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.